Welcome back to Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. My name is Bella, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. Moira Dillon. Molly is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at New York University, where she directs the lab for the developing mind. Molly and her lab use cognitive, developmental, and computational approaches to study infant cognition, including the early emerging knowledge about objects, people, and places, symbolic thought and reasoning in geometry and logic, pictorial and linguistic production, and the relation between human cognition and machine intelligence. In addition, Molly is passionate about scientific and community outreach. Her lab regularly collaborates with local museums, and you can also find the lab sharing their work in the media, such as the New York Times. In this episode, we discuss Molly's new research on common sense psychology in human infants and how this research helps us advance our understanding of machine intelligence. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a great pleasure. pleasure to have you. Yeah. yeah. All right. So why don't we start with a brief introduction of your lab? Um, so what are some of the research topics that your lab is interested in studying? Thanks so much, Bella. Uh, so my lab is focusing primarily on three lines of research right now. The first line of research focuses on infants' foundational knowledge about the people, objects, and places of everyday life. This work is collaborative with folks who build artificial intelligence. And the ultimate goal here is to have a comprehensive description of infant knowledge in core areas of human cognition and to inform AI that we can better understand and that can better understand us. A second line of research focuses on the origin and development of human symbolic understanding, primarily pictorial understanding. So humans are the only species that spontaneously and creatively produce and interpret symbolic pictures. Using behavioral experiments with infants and young children, my lab investigates both the spatial and symbolic abilities that support human pictorial understanding. And finally, in a third line of research, we explore how infants and children's early emerging intuitions in the numerical and spatial domains might form a foundation for formal learning in school. In collaboration with educators and economists working in India, we translate our lab findings to design math interventions for preschool-aged children. Wow, awesome. That's so fascinating. For today, could you share a recent project that you've been working on with us? Yes. So the recent project I'll talk about today is one that is falling under that first umbrella research uh, line that I mentioned, Mm -hmm. looking at infants' foundational knowledge um, that may inform common sense AI. So in particular, uh, we have recently designed a suite of tasks that we call the Baby Intuitions Benchmark. And Mm -hmm. it is focusing on common sense knowledge that infants have about psychology, so about the causes underlying others' actions. Okay. Well, so you mentioned infant common sense. So let's unpack that for just a minute. What does that even mean? How infants have common sense? What? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Common sense is a term used mostly in AI communities to refer to basic everyday knowledge and reasoning about the world. Like, for example, that objects are solid and can't be in two places at once, and that people's actions are motivated by goals. Um, This knowledge can be used for everyday reasoning, like, for example, reasoning that I just picked up my water bottle because I wanted a drink of water. Mm 
Um, while even human infants have a solid foundation of common sense about people, objects, and places, most AI lacks such common sense. Right. And what, just curious, when do you see infants start to develop this ability? Well, I think there are a lot of open questions about the origin and development of common sense. But if research in developmental psychology has taught us anything in the last 60 years or so, it's that infants know a lot more than it seems, even far before they learn to talk. So one very tempting hypothesis is that some common sense is foundational, core knowledge, that's present not only in the mind of a human infant, but also in the minds of some animal species. So the suggestion is that human infants don't need to learn common sense. Rather, they're endowed with it through evolution. Our evolutionary inheritance is a, is a gift of knowledge. Right. That's very interesting. Um, okay, so going back to the study, yeah. um, what did you find in the study? Okay. Tell us more about it. What we found is that infants' common sense psychology, so their knowledge and reasoning about why people act the way they do, includes key features missing in standard forms of machine common sense. So where infants succeed in making predictions based on the goal-directed and rational behaviors of others, machines fail. So what we did is we created this benchmark. So benchmark mm -hmm. is a term, term used in machine learning or kind of AI communities. That means basically a suite of tasks that focus on one content area, one sort of set of abilities. So our suite of tasks um, focused on reasoning about the intentions underlying others' actions. So the aim was to comprehensively evaluate an observer's common sense psychology uh, about reasoning, uh, their reasoning about how and why other people act. So we made six tasks and it was inspired by infants' knowledge in, in this area about agents and their actions and their action understanding. So the first three tasks we made uh, focused on the idea that agents' actions are goal-directed. So when you see somebody in the environment acting, you make an inference that they have some sort of goal in mind when they're taking these actions. Right. So we had one task that probes an observer's uh, inference that actions are goal-directed towards objects, not towards locations. So if I reach for something, you infer that I'm reaching for, for the object uh, mm -hmm. that's there as opposed to simply the location. Um, another task, we looked at uh, whether or not infants or, or machines infer that goals can be shared across different agents. So mm -hmm. maybe I like, like uh, ice cream uh, over broccoli. And uh, the question is, would an observer infer that you too like ice cream over broccoli? For example. Oh, okay. Um, a third task along similar lines was one in which we asked whether an observer thinks that an agent might change its goals when its previous goal becomes unattainable. So using the same kind of structure, we made the original goal uh, one that now was unattainable. The question is, what should an agent do? The next two tasks focused on reasoning about agents' actions as efficient and rational. So if you see me walk across the street and um, head towards the mailbox, you even uh, as a human infant might think, okay, she must be going to the mailbox because she took a straight, efficient path to that mailbox, right? Oh, As opposed wow. to meandering around the neighborhood, right? right? Or you might think my goal was maybe just to meander or to, take, to do some exercise. Yeah. Um, so the next two tasks focuses on this, focused on this idea that our actions are, agents' actions are rational um, when they're goal-directed. Uh, finally, we had a task that focused on uh, the idea of instrumental action. So we should only take instrumental actions when they're necessary. So... This is sort of the higher level structure of the, the kind of breadth of capacities that we were testing, but we tested it in a way that was heavily inspired by 
studies with infants. So infants, the types of experiments you can do with infants are somewhat limited because they can't right. really do right. yeah. <laughs> um, So one thing they do rather reliably, however, is they, they look at things. Um, mm -hmm. Infants tend to look longer at things they find uh, preferable or interesting or novel or surprising. Mm -hmm. So we took this tendency and we adopted a paradigm that's commonly used in the infant literature called a violation of expectation looking time paradigm. Mm -hmm. So how this works is you use a series of familiarization trials. So a series, in our case, of videos that serve to set up an expectation through repeated actions of a particular kind of event. And um, these familiarization trials, again, serve to set up a particular expectation. And then they're followed by two test videos um, in the test phase. Um, so we have the familiarization phase and then the test phase. And the test phase presents an expected outcome relative to what was presented previously during familiarization. And this expected outcome, while it's conceptually consistent, is usually somewhat perceptually different. And then there's the unexpected outcome, which is perceptually very similar to the familiarization, but introduces a conceptual violation. Mm -hmm. So in the case of infants, uh, the idea is that if they notice this violation at this sort of higher level, then they'll look longer at the unexpected outcome. Um, now, what's good about this in terms of designing a machine learning benchmark, right? Because we have to have this, these dual goals in mind, right? To test infants and to test machines. Um, what's good about this is that it allows for the psychological measure of surprise based on these outcomes to be compared to uh, an algorithm's production of a continuous surprisal score on some scale, which can be produced from watching videos like this. Um, it's also good in terms of testing um, uh, particular algorithms because it protects against low-level heuristic-based solutions. So as I mentioned, the perceptual similarity between the um, expected outcome and the familiarization mm -hmm. is low. So if the algorithm is just looking for low-level perceptual differences, then um, it'll get the wrong answer. Okay. So now that we know the content and the structure of the tasks, let's get into a little bit more detail about what we found. Infants seemed to have these inferences that agents' actions are goal-directed towards objects, okay? And um, we also found that these expectations are rather local. So they don't carry over to new contexts with new agents or changes in the affordances of the environment. So in short, infants succeed at recognizing agents' actions as goal-directed towards objects. I'm moving my hand here because I want the water bottle, not because I want my hand to move to the right, for example. Right. When we introduce new agents, those goals don't transfer. And when we introduce and when we block a particular uh, goal object, there the infants' um, inference is sort of reset, so they don't have any further expectations. That was one finding. We also found that infants expect agents to go to their goals in efficient and rational ways. So when an infant would watch somebody move across the street to the mailbox, they expect that path to be efficient, not a meandering around the neighborhood kind of path. Um, they also seem to have this default expectation about efficiency. So when um, an infant observed an agent who had previously moved inefficiently um, in a new environment, they nevertheless expect that agent to move efficiently for the first time in pursuit of a goal. And finally, we found with infants that they, um, they didn't succeed on our instrumental action task. So um, we inferred here that because of the kind of the novelty of Bib's environment, um, we, uh, we don't think that the babies understood 
kind of causal sequence of events that might allow them to access any inferences they're able to make about these mm-hmm. um, This, you know, we chose these kinds of tasks because we, um, we wanted to capture and uh, sort of enrich the existing literature on infants' uh, common sense psychology, which had, in some cases, really strong evidence, and in some cases, some mixed evidence. There was strong evidence that infants infer that agents' actions are pulled towards objects, there's strong evidence that um, infants think that agents should act rationally. Um, there was mixed evidence whether or not they think that agents should share goals, whether or not they might form goals when goals become unattainable, and that they're able to recognize instrumental actions or make inferences about instrumental actions under certain conditions. That said, even in our successes, we were kind of impressed with how infants did. And the reason was that the displays that we showed babies were highly minimal. So a lot of folks have seen the kind of famous Hyder and Simmel displays where there's a circle and Mm -hmm. a triangle. And I think it's the big triangles chasing the circle and the little triangle and the the little shape trying to get away. So Mm -hmm. we make a lot of rich inferences uh, when we watch these videos, but the displays themselves are rather minimal. So we adopted this kind of minimal display scenario for, mm. for testing the infants. Oh, and we were rather impressed that they were t- able to attribute all of these underlying goals and intentions to these shapes moving in a 2D grid world. Um, uh, usually infant uh, testing has, uh, infant stimuli has richer uh, visual information. Um, mm-hmm. but, but it suggests that infants' knowledge about agents is rather abstract. So we were, we were impressed by infants on that So infant successes suggest that they expect that agents have goal-directed actions towards objects and a principle of rationality that leads to default expectations of efficient action towards goals. Infants' failures suggest that their expectations are rather local, as I said. That is, they don't carry over to new contexts with other agents or changes in the affordances of the environment. And infants' expectations may rely on actions that they find causally transparent. So that's how infants did. That's characteristic, a comprehensive account of infants' common sense psychology. How did the machines do? Do they have the same kind of common sense psychology or what might be missing? The the machine learning models that we tested, we tested three learning-driven computational models, uh, neural network models. And these are models that were designed to have a sort of theory of mind module. So they're kind of meant to focus on this idea of common sense psychology. That said, they're not, they haven't previously been compared to human uh, performance, let alone infant performance. And they're not great in general at, at um, uh, generalizing beyond the distribution of their training set, which is something that they've required. Nevertheless, we thought this comparison would be informative to, um, to let us know whether this kind of state-of-the-art um, machine common sense in the, in the psychology domain uh, looked anything like what, what infants do. Turns out the machine performance was pretty much orthogonal to the babies. Um, so, so they lacked this kind of inference that um, uh, goals are directed towards objects and mm-hmm. that there's a principle of efficiency that, that is sort of default that um, invents might attribute to even agents who had previously acted uh, inefficiently. Wow, this is so interesting and definitely a very sophisticated study. And it's a big step towards human and machine interaction for sure. Um, so I definitely have a few questions and some comments as I listen to you uh, introduce to us this study. So the first question that came in mind was, I heard six, five or six different tasks that the babies yes. have to do. Yes. 
<laughs> that sounds like a lot of tasks. Um, and how long were each task? Yeah, so it was a lot, and um, I think our design was rather unique as far as infant studies go. Typically, infant research with infants presents one or two studies, sort of in the same paper. Right, they're individual tasks shown to single groups of infants. Um, they're usually focusing on uh, one aspect of one content domain. Um, often across studies, you see lots of variation in the methods and materials, so live actors versus animated mm -hmm. displays. So we right. really took a different approach here, trying to kind of comprehensively characterize infants' knowledge about agents, as, as you said, through a number of different tasks that probe different abilities. But yes, there is there are practical challenges to this. Um, uh, you know, six sessions with an infant is rather demanding. So the first thing we did is is we broke up each of the six tasks into six different sessions. I they see. only did one task at a time per session. Okay. Um, each session lasted about twenty to thirty minutes. It was conducted over Zoom. So I think this also facilitated our ability to recruit and retain participants throughout right. the course of the study. Um, parents could do it from the comfort of their own home. Um, this is challenging for developmental scientists in terms of understanding what the effects are of home testing versus in-lab testing, mm -hmm. right? So the lab is highly controlled. We have, um, you know, we know exactly what's being presented on the screen. We have a big screen usually. Um, mm -hmm. The environment is quiet and dark and there aren't other things going on in the background. Um, so it's it's a little bit of a mystery how uh, how the home environment home environment versus the lab environment might affect infant's performance. Um, mm -hmm. There's different kinds of noise, for example. Um, but so far, we as a developmental community have been, I think, rather successful at using um, at home Zoom based approaches um, to collect infant data. So I'm excited about that. But basically, what I think it, the advantage here is that allow, it allowed us to um, you know, recruit participants that wouldn't necessarily be able to come to the lab for six visits, right? Absolutely, yeah. A month period. Um, and to uh, to think about a suite of tasks that could actually be shown to the same infants over a short period of time and get this this more comprehensive description that I think so far has been lacking in the way that we've, we've worked with infant studies in the past. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that babies couldn't possibly focus for the 20 to 30 minutes at a time. So they definitely had to take breaks, I assume. So and yeah, the 20 to 30 minute window is like the whole time the whole period session. of okay. the study, right? So the actual videos were about five to six minutes. Okay. So, <laughs> so how did you- So cool fitting into that, into their attentional span. Right. Um, so if the baby was distracted, what magic ways did you use to <laughs> get the baby's attention back to the simile? Yeah. <laughs> so we have these things between each familiarization trial and test trial called attention grabbers. Mm. So they're usually some sort of like looming shape or sparkling or glittering um, kind of abstract form with an accompanying sound. And um, like any time you play with a baby and you shake a toy and the baby looks, um, the right. purpose of those kinds of attention grabbers is to get babies focused back on the screen. Um, it also took some piloting to figure out what what sort of level of interest was appropriate? Um, uh, you know, how could we make minimal displays that mm -hmm. conveyed the um, the roles of each of the shapes that we were showing babies, right? This is an agent, this is right. an object. 
how can we take a minimal approach, but still make it interesting enough for babies to watch and, and look at, right? So we could measure what they were thinking. Um, luckily for us, 11 month olds who are kind of at the right point of development in terms of their performance in tasks of common sense psychology also were about at the right age to look long enough to these displays um, yeah. <laughs> where we were able to get uh, meaningful data from them. We we also piloted with 15 month olds and 18 month olds and oh, wow. 18 month olds just got up and walked away. They were uh, so, so we kind of found a sweet spot in terms of. Yeah. That's actually surprising that you'd think one and a half year old would be able to sit for longer and pay attention longer, but apparently not. <laughs> I mean, I look, can look at these things for hours. I don't know what's going on. With the <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I think it's just a little too boring for them. Um, and, yeah. you know, they might be more interested in, in richer displays, you know, 3D, um, mm-hmm. uh, 3D displays with uh, kind of more visual detail. Um they also might be interested in, uh, we we showed the, the video and then we paused the last frame. So this mm-hmm. is what some infant studies do. They start collecting the looking time data at different points in the video and kind mm-hmm. of pause the last frame. Um, other folks like to loop their videos. So you keep the action playing again and again. And in general, this can be a good strategy because infants will watch as the movement happens, right? So this mm-hmm. can be a good strategy for getting infants to pay attention to your stimuli for longer. Yeah, interesting. Um, and I also have a clarification question. So earlier when you're talking about the task, there is a task called uh, perceptually similar task. Did I um, remember that correctly? Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah and Can the you test- give us an example? Yeah. So the structure of all of the tasks actually is to present a series of familiarization trials that serve to set up an expectation. And then those trials are followed by two test trials. One kind of test trial is the expected outcome based on what was presented during familiarization. And that trial is perceptually dissimilar from the familiarization events, but is conceptually consistent. The unexpected trial, in in contrast, is perceptually similar to the familiarization trials, but introduces a conceptual violation. And so if infants look longer at the unexpected outcome, it's not because they notice some perceptual difference between the familiarization and that outcome, because that perceptual difference is actually in the expected trial. They looked longer at the unexpected trial because there was some conceptual difference that they noticed, some conceptual violation that they noticed. So all of our tasks actually follow the structure so that we can be uh, confident that the longer looking times have to do with uh, infants' conceptual knowledge or conceptual predictions about the, uh, the content of the tasks. So let's take, for example, the efficient agent task. So infants saw a very simple 2D environment, a grid world environment, which kind of looks like a checkerboard, but the black and white squares aren't arranged in a regular pattern. The agents can move in the white space and the black squares are the obstacles in the environment. So there was one agent in this task, let's just call it a circle, and one goal object, a triangle. And so during familiarization, the circle would move around these black squares in the grid world to the triangle and would move around those black squares efficiently along the most efficient path. During test, the arrangement of the black squares changed. So now the paths that the agent took during familiarization wouldn't be efficient anymore because the obstacles are in a different place. So the expected outcome presents a totally novel path, but yet is still an efficient path. 
The unexpected outcome, in contrast, presents one of the paths that the agent had taken previously during familiarization, but now it's inefficient because the obstacles aren't there anymore. So pixel by pixel, the inefficient path is one that looks a lot more perceptually similar. The inefficient path and the unexpected outcome is one that looks a lot more perceptually similar to what the infants have seen before, but it introduces this conceptual violation. This agent is now acting irrationally. The expected outcome, in contrast, is one that pixel by pixel is totally novel, is perceptually dissimilar, but it is consistent insofar as that agent is still acting efficiently towards its goals. Okay. So that's what I meant by perceptual similarity versus difference in the two kinds of um, outcomes and a kind of making sure that the unexpected outcome is capturing a conceptual violation as opposed to a perceptual change. I see. Yeah. Thank you for the clarification. Now it's crystal clear. Um, <laughs> and another thing that stuck with me when you were giving us an example was you used a mailbox example. Um, yeah. You said the baby somehow understands that if you go straight to the mailbox, they understand you're trying to get your mail. And if you were just wandering around, they know that you're probably not going to get the mailbox. So how that's just so shocking to me. How does a pre-verbal infant have this ability to understand, oh, that's an efficient path? How do they calculate what's efficient, what's not efficient? So I think that's a wonderful question, and I think it's been understudied. I'm actually really interested in this. So I mentioned how my lab is, uh, you know, also focuses on spatial reasoning and spatial understanding. Mm -hmm. There has right. to be some sort of geometric calculation when um, babies are making these inferences about um, about uh, uh, you know efficient paths mm -hmm. on a particular surface, right, with particular affordances versus inefficient ones. And the research so far has really just focused on this idea and taken for granted the fact that babies can recognize efficiency. Um, and there have been varied paths that different kinds of researchers have used and found that, you know, this still seems to be true, curved paths, straight paths, babies can mm -hmm. recognize all sorts of efficient paths. But the, the particular geometric sensitivity that goes into that recognition, I think, at this point is understudied and important for us to understand because it allows us to um, kind of figure out how maybe babies' inferences about places might be interacting with their inferences about agents and people mm -hmm. to allow for um, sort of integrated knowledge uh, about how how we move in the environment and how other people behave. Right. Absolutely. I'm so curious. I can't wait to see more studies on this. <laughs> we, have, um, we have a paper coming out soon, I hope, um, <laughs> on six to eight-year-olds reasoning about agents' actions on spherical surfaces. Oh, wow. So, cool. Yeah. So it's uh, rarely the case that spherical geometry is uh, taught in school at all um, right. to, to six to eight year olds. But we found that when we ask children questions about agents' actions on spherical surfaces and agents' efficient actions on spherical surfaces, they actually succeed in recognizing geodesics, which are curved, um, you know, curved over part of the sphere, part of a great mm -hmm. circle. They can recognize those over curves that are not geodesic, so are inefficient paths on the sphere. Um, so we think this is kind of amazing, and yeah. we're hoping to translate this into an infant study um, because we think we think this idea of couching spatial reasoning in uh, judging the actions of others may be promising to kind of unlock all sorts of um, spatial capacities that um, we, we didn't even realize that we had. Absolutely. That would be so cool. I, I can't wait. I'm so excited. <laughs> And another thing I was thinking to myself is just 
also shocking is um, I think you mentioned infants um, understand that different people might have different goals in mind. Um, so basically, they they understand each individual is different in their own way and have different goals and have different mindsets. How are they able to do this? I mean, they pretty much don't understand any kind of language at that point. They can't speak it fluently yet. So how do they do that? Well, you know, babies babies know a lot of stuff. We think, as I mentioned before, we've we've learned a lot about what babies know, and you know, well before they start speaking.、Um, mm-hmm. It seems like they have endowed in them, or at least there's early early developing knowledge in these particular content domains, knowledge about objects and places and people that allow for these rich and abstract inferences. Now, why? I don't know. I mean, presumably <laughs> it was evolutionarily adaptive in some way, right? Because we see this kind of these kinds of capacities and and precursors to this kind of knowledge in other animal species as well. There, there are some great studies with newly hatched chickens, controlled reared chickens, on agency reasoning and how they, you know, recognize agents in their environment、um, uh, to to know、uh, sort of how to behave from very early on.、Mm-hmm. So the question of why I'm I'm not sure, but. Uh, there may have been some、uh, evolutionary advantage to having these kinds of abstract inferences about objects, people, and places that、mm-hmm. um, that we have inherited as an evolutionary gift.、Um, that that it, that's a, a great gift. <laughs> yeah, and this incredible knowledge、um, from very early on. Yeah. So, is it、um, a reach to say that maybe infants don't need language? To learn common sense, to learn this kind of reasoning. So, well, so I think there's some kinds of common sense, like the kinds we've been talking about, where language is not necessary. But、mm-hmm. human language is, of course, very powerful, right? It allows、mm-hmm. us to take these phylogenetically ancient common sense capacities that we've been talking about and run wild into abstract realms, right? Of philosophy and mathematics, certainly not common sense, right? right. Nevertheless, there may be some intermediate steps. That we would call common sense,、uh, for which the role of language would have to be considered.、Um, still, I think language's building blocks in this case might again be those kind of evolutionarily ancient、um, common sense components that we've been discussing so far.、Mm-hmm. And do you think AIs have the potential to learn or understand common sense? <laughs> yeah. So this this is a big debate, and、um, you know I'm the Developmental cognitive scientist.、Um, I'm not the artificial intelligence researcher.、Um, so、uh, people have very strong opinions about this. This is my take.、Um, mm-hmm. One of the general challenges of building AI to solve benchmarks like the ones,、uh, the one we made, is deciding、yeah. what knowledge to start with. Right. So some、yeah. think that AI is most elegant or powerful when it emerges from nothing, written on a blank slate, coded only with ideal learning mechanisms. Others think that this, there should be knowledge built in, right? Handcrafted priors, perhaps reflecting, as we've been discussing, what's already been learned, or in quotation marks, learned for humans through evolution.、Um, that said, I mean, you could imagine that this evolutionary inheritance may not need to be built in to a machine learning system either. So, for example, there is this really cool、um, recent work in mouse neurophysiology. Uh, that's found neural responses in neonatal mice that reflect simulated movement through their local environment, and this kind of like again quote unquote experience or training may form a foundation for flexible knowledge about places. So common sense、yeah. knowledge about places present from the moment a mouse opens its eyes for the first time. So、yeah. I think such cross species neuroscientific studies 
uh, give us insight into neural development of our own high-level thought, and machine learning can give us insight into its computational structure. So, I mean, my my sense is that there's a lot of ways to think about this problem, um, and engineering common sense and engineering intelligence that looks like human intelligence comes with uh, a lot of decisions. Um, but I think in terms of an inspiration from human intelligence, it's important to consider that we know a lot about uh, human and infant cognition. And mm-hmm. um, that might be, if, if an aim is to build AI that looks like human intelligence, then um, then AI might need to start from the same core foundations as infants. Yeah, that's very true. Interesting. Thank you for sharing your take on this. Yeah. Um, okay, so... I know we talked a lot about uh, exciting ideas. Um, so what are some upcoming projects? You mentioned one of the projects that is happening soon. What other projects are do you have in mind? Well, in terms of direct follow-ups on this work, we are now, so we've created this baby intuitions benchmark that's focusing mm-hmm. on uh, reasoning about the underlying causes of others' actions. Mm-hmm. We're now working on uh, the baby intuitions benchmark two, so bib two, And the idea here is to um, complement the first benchmark and maybe incorporate some of the um, the study, the the tasks from the original benchmark in a slightly different way. Um, uh, Complement it with this idea that another component of early social knowledge is reasoning about potential social partners in the environment. So individuals with whom you can share phenomenal experiences, with whom you can share attention, Um, Mm -hmm. individuals who have uh, emotion individuals who might be part of your social group. So the idea here is to take inspiration from tasks with infants that are focusing more on this idea that infants are able to recognize potential social partners in the environment and combine that with tasks um, uh, looking at infants reasoning about others, not as social partners, but as agents with goals uh, and who act rationally and try to figure out how these two ingredients might come together to form this uniquely human social intelligence where we can at the same time think about another person as goal-directed and as having an experience that we can share or a goal that we can share. So some of the studies from the infant literature that focus on recognition of social partners um, look at capacities like infants' inferences about imitation. So mm-hmm. when a baby sees a, um, uh, another person imitating someone else. They think that that imitating person is going to approach the person that they imitated. So they're going to make a kind of social gesture towards that person um, versus a person that they didn't imitate, right? Mm -hmm. So there are these cues that infants seem to use from early on that signal potential social affiliation. And we're aiming to create a suite of tasks that um, kind of highlight some of the high points that we hit with Bib 1 in terms of infant successes about reasoning about others as goal-directed towards objects and uh, rational in their pursuit of goals, uh, focus on some capacities that seem to signal to infants that there are potential social partners in the environment, and then take some tasks that seem to combine those two abilities, like, for example, um, false belief tasks, Mm -hmm. where you have to reason about, as an observer, you have to reason about the goals and intentions of somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. But also their perceptual access or their phenomenal access to elements, objects in the environment that may have been hidden or moved, right? Did Mm -hmm. that person see this thing here or here, right? Right. What happened when they were gone? 
So those kinds of capacities, false belief tasks, are uh, require that an observer thinks about the agents acting in that environment as agents with goals, say for particular objects, but also agents who can see or not see, right? Have mm-hmm. certain phenomenal or perceptual access to different elements in the environment. So we're looking for a balance here and a sort of integration where we have agent-focused tasks, tasks, social partner-focused tasks, mm-hmm. and then tasks that bring those two capacities together um, and uh, really challenge infants' reasoning about other people as both um, uh, goal-directed and as potential social partners. Mm-hmm. Now for this, um, we may need richer environments. Um, we na- may need, for example, 3D environments where occlusion is a little bit more obvious, right? Yeah. <laughs> the environments we have now. We also may try testing infants at different age, range, age ranges. It would be really cool, for example, if we took, say, infants younger than 10 months and we showed that they could independently succeed on an agent reasoning task and a sort of social partner reasoning task, but they couldn't bring the two together. Mm, um, right. And they wouldn't succeed on, on, on tasks that required um, representing individuals as both of those things at once. And then taking older infants and show that they're able to succeed on kind of all three types of, of mm-hmm. tasks. Um, it's a challenge, of course, because you also have to make sure that the complexity of each of the kinds of tasks is reasonably controlled. So it's not just about younger infants failing because the, the kind of pinnacle is too difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But that's, um, the, that's the idea. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, I'm so curious to see how younger babies do on these tasks. And would uh, Bib two also be online study? I think so. I think we're um, we we had good success with um, with the Bib one tests online. I think we're going to try that again. I think we're also going to try to highlight a little bit, um, kind of try to maximize a little bit more on what we've learned about making the stimuli. Um, uh, exciting enough for babies, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, that's a really important component. Um, uh, we've learned a lot about how to instruct parents to um, create environments that are minimally distracting, how mm-hmm. to position their babies so that we can get good looking time data from them. Mm-hmm. So so we're going to try that because especially if we want repeated measures, if we want wide age ranges, then we're right. going to probably have to rely on uh, remote testing. I see. And you mentioned looking time data. Um, just curious, how do you measure when they're looking? How do you even know like they're looking at the stimuli on the screen? Yeah, so um, we we uh, practice. <laughs> Basically, we watch <laughs> a lot of videos of babies looking at screens and looking off screens. Mm-hmm. And we have folks who have practiced this quite a bit. And anyone who's training to do it for the first time, we have them practice a lot and then compare their judgments of looking on versus off the screen to mm-hmm. folks who have done it even longer, right? So we use human coders, right, to basically yeah. press a button when the baby looks at the screen and release the button when the baby's not looking at the screen. Mm, I see. We compare those comparisons across, uh, you know, a number of different coders, make sure that they're convergent. Um, and then when we're training new coders, that's that's how we do it as well. Um, there are a lot of folks working on automatic coding of infant looking time. Uh, this isn't the easiest problem because babies don't really keep their heads still and um, their eyes can be hard to see sometimes, especially in a webcam. Um, But this is something if we're thinking about high throughput infant research online that will become very helpful and save us some human hours um, doing all of that that human coding. 
Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've, I've been there and done that. I was once yeah. a human coder for study <laughs> and it's really tough. It's Sometimes tough. you really can't see. And then, you know, different families have different quality of webcams. Sometimes yep. the images are really blurry. You yep. can't tell if they move their brow or it's just the images like being a little bit delayed. <laughs> yep. There are a lot of challenges. The developmental science community is really interested in solving these problems. Um, yeah. There are folks at this online uh, platform called Look It who are working mm -hmm. very hard at this problem. There are um, many independent labs that are trying to come up with solutions, and there's a lot of sharing in the community because we're all hoping that we can improve some of our tools. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> is there anything else that you want to share? I, I think the only other thing I'll add is that we're also really excited for Bib2 in terms of interactions with the machine learning and AI community. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that um, as AI becomes kind of more embedded into these multi-agent settings, we think that recognition and inference about, um, about uh, the kinds of scenarios we're planning on testing in, in Bib2, where there are multiple agents, where there is um, uh, you know perceptual access to one thing or another it might be fun and challenging for AI researchers to think about as well. So um, anyone on the AI side who's interested in uh, some of these questions, they can definitely feel free to, to reach out to us and um, we'd be happy to chat. Great, thank you for sharing. Um, so we're almost at time today. I want to thank you again for joining me on the podcast and for sharing your cool studies with us. We'll stay tuned for the upcoming papers, and we look forward to hearing more about your work in the future. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. You can click on the link to the survey attached in the show description or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or other platforms so that more people can find us. Thank you so much.